This is from the Heki Ganroku case 60. Yundman's staff changes into a dragon. The pointer. Buddhas and sentient beings, fundamentally, there is no difference between them. Mountains and rivers and one's own self. How could there be any distinction? Why then is it all divided into two sides? Even if you can set words turning and occupy the essential bridge, it still won't do to let go. If you don't let go, the whole great earth isn't worth grasping. But what is it? The place to set words turning, to test, I cite this. Look, the main case. Yunmen showed his staff to the assembly and said, The staff has changed into a dragon and swallowed the universe. Mountains, rivers, the great earth. Where are they to be found? Secho's verse. The staff swallowed the universe. He vainly talks of peach blossoms floating on the rushing waves. For those with tails burnt off, it's not a matter of grasping clouds and seizing fog. Why should the exhausted ones necessarily lose their courage and spirit? I have picked it up. Do you hear or not? One simply must be completely free and at ease. Stop any further mixed up and confusion. With 72 blows, I'm still letting you off easy. Even with 150, it's still hard to forgive you. Master Secho suddenly picked up his staff and came down from his seat. All at once, the great assembly scattered and fled. So we are now a month into our spring ango. And as it often happens at this point of what is meant to be an intensified training period, the level of intensity tends to drop and the resolve is weakened. And this is quite natural, so we shouldn't worry about it or think that there's something wrong with our practice or with our ability to sustain it. What matters at this point, what matters most, is that we maintain a heightened level of awareness so we can keep the finger on the pulse of our practice and sense, recognize, know when it begins to lose the momentum and we begin to veer off course. And when this happens, all we need to do is simply acknowledge it Tighten up the slack and resume the original course we have set at the beginning of this ango. This is not to say that it is easy to do. It's also not to say that it is difficult to do. It's just what we need to do. And if we do it without the labeling 
It just happens. Or we find ourselves doing it. One of the most profoundly powerful revelations of our practice is the discovery of a deep voice or an inner compass, which we are all endowed with, but it often remains elusive for most, since we have come to trust a more superficial or conventional voice. And this inner voice is what leads a practitioner to seek the Dharma and engage with the practice. It speaks to us from a deep place within us, and it constantly echoes and communicates with everything we encounter, everyone we meet, since it speaks the language of unity. It speaks before we speak. And a committed practice teaches us to be more in tune with that voice, so we can allow it to be a guide, to guide us, guide us direct speaking and acting in ways that reflect inclusiveness, reflect interconnectedness. And so during an ango, we raise our commitment to honor this inner voice and intensify our work on staying true to our unified essence. We're not inventing anything. We are rediscovering and then allowing. And the interesting thing about this, this kind of work is that when we are in tune with our essence, sustaining the resolve does not feel so difficult. And we find ourselves naturally gravitated towards maintaining a regular practice. And while we maintain regular practice, somehow we also manage to find time to care for all the responsibilities life is asking of us. There's not one or the other. And we take care of all these responsibilities with even more attention, more care, better efficiency, without giving it so much weight. It only seems as if we have to choose between taking care of stuff, caring for the different uh, responsibilities, or practicing. In fact, when we are in tune with our true self, we find ourselves more in tune with others, more caring, light-hearted, more engaged with life in general. When we sustain a committed practice, it makes perfect sense to keep it alive and stay committed. But when the resolve begins to erode, and we all know that, a different kind of voice becomes louder and quite convincing. We start to drift away from unity and our priorities change. Suddenly, the practice may not seem to us as important and it may be moved to the back burner for a while. When this happens, we begin to feel more irritated, more judgmental with ourselves, other people, less patient, less caring, and generally, discontent with life. I know it from my own experiences with years of practice, and I've heard this 
many times in different variations in Dokusan. And what I've learned from practice is that the more we practice, the more it makes sense to sustain it. And the less we practice, the less relevant it feels. Either way, since everything is interconnected, whatever we do will have consequences. And so there's no way to escape the domino effect. Practice or don't, we're all in it in the same way. So isn't that teaching us how interconnectedness work within us? You know, we chose to devote this ango to the study of this maybe elusive topic of interconnectedness. And we engage with it with workshops and ancient texts to clarify this aspect of our existence. But if we want to develop an experiential understanding of it, all we need to do is turn the attention inwardly and observe the workings of our body and mind. Since everything is everything, each one of us is the entire universe. And so instead of trying to unite what has never been divided, we need to examine our resistance to unity and the ways we create the illusion of divisiveness and separateness. As, this, as the point of this koan begins with, Buddhas and sentient beings, fundamentally, there is no difference between them. Mountains and rivers and one's own self, how could there be any distinction? Why then, why then, is it all divided into two sides? Now, we don't stop with two. We just don't stop dividing. But once we start dividing, we just continue. You know, we can discuss or examine our separation or divisiveness in terms of self and other, form and formlessness, relative absolute, high and low, in and out, and so on. However we discuss this, the issue lies with our fascination with a binary way of thinking which is sustaining a self that appears to be unchanging. Appears to be unchanging. Appears to be alienated, separated, and limited in a fixed time and location. We are asked, when we are asked to verify the validity of this illusion, we turn to the story of our lives and to the perceptions and senses that seem to substantiate it, seem to create a separate existence. But we need to investigate this claim further, beyond our senses, or beyond what our senses portray, and ask, is it possible that our senses can verify, do they have the power to verify, a solid and absolute self? How far can the eye see? How much can the ear hear? How much can the brain comprehend that we make it so real 
and so solid. We have to look at the, the ways and the tools of our examination before we run with our conclusions. Our senses themselves are constantly changing. Einstein said, one thing I've learned from a, in a long life, that all our science measured against reality is primitive and childlike. We still do not know one thousandth of one percent of what nature has revealed to us. It is entirely possible that behind our perception or the perception of our senses, worlds are hidden of which we are unaware. We barely scratch the surface, even with science, even with tools that we came up with and verified to be working well. Even with that, we scratch the surface. So why is it that we divide? Why is it that we walk around feeling the need to protect and defend? Hold on. Push away. There is a way to enter directly and experience this. But there is no way to comprehend it. And so the less we try to understand or analyze, the more we can experience or be open to the experience. And it is a challenge to avoid the temptation to try to figure it out. Try to figure ourselves out. When people first get involved with the practice, they tend to look for ways to evaluate their zazen based on some idea of parameters that indicates or seem to indicate progress or depth of practice. And this can also happen after years of practice. As we go through highs and lows, plateaus, of course, very natural. We tend to compare and judge it. When we get into such patterns, it's like we are trying to shove a vast experience into one of the made-up boxes of our perceptions. It simply doesn't work. But not, not just it doesn't work, it actually holds us back from expanding our experiences. It is far better to dive into Zazen wholeheartedly and then when Zazen ends, leave it alone. Leave it alone. Let the practice naturally permeate your life. Naturally. People ask, how am I doing? Here is, here is a report for my zazen. Is it good? Am I progressing? Am I regressing? Do I know what I'm doing? In fact, the basics are very easily understood, the basics of practice, or what to do, or maybe what to avoid on the cushion. Then what? Then what do I do? Just do that? It's a little too loose, too wide open, 
I need something. I need a tool by which to measure my practice. How do we measure? Why are we so obsessed with trying to measure? And how does it feel to not measure? How does it feel to float around without parameters? In this koan, Yunmen held up his staff while he was giving a talk and said, this staff has changed into a dragon and swallowed the universe. The entire universe, mountains, rivers, the great earth. Where are they to be found? If everything is swallowed, where can it be found? A dragon, as you know, is a depiction of an enlightened being. When one has an experience of enlightenment or Kensho, the binary functioning of the thinking mind becomes quite insignificant. The conceptual dividing walls drop away and reality appears as it is, one unified, total, and constantly permeating web of interconnectedness, which is the way it has always been. And so to say that the dragon swallows the entire universe is the same as saying that the entire universe appears right here. Whatever you pick up essentially contains it all. Everything always swallows everything. When the footnote says, What's the use of so much talk? What's the use of changing? The only thing that changes is a shift of consciousness from the conceptual to the real, which in terms of reality is quite insignificant. But in terms of our experience of life and the consequences of our actions, this has a giant, significance. In fact, we can say that the realization of inherent unity is the single most important task of a human being. Again, back to Einstein, he said, our separation from each other is an optical illusion. When something vibrates, the electrons of the entire universe resonate with it. Everything is connected. The greatest tragedy of human existence is the illusion of separateness. And it is. It is the greatest, the greatness of all our harmful propensities. Or well, a lot actually can be traced back to that divisiveness. A lot of our issues, a lot of our problems. The Avatamsaka Sutra contains different metaphors that are meant to illustrate the inherent unity that connects everything to everything. And one of the more famous illustrations is Indra's net. 
And the sutra says, High above in heaven, on the roof of the palace of the god Indra, there hang innumerable ornaments in the form of small crystal marbles. They are interlaced in various patterns, forming, forming a great complex network which connects everything to everything. Because of the reflection of light, not only does each and every one of these marbles reflect the entire cosmos, including the continent and oceans and the human world down below, but at the same time, they reflect one another, including all the reflected images in each and every marble without omission. And this parable, in fact, is parallel to the demonstration of the interpenetration of realms embracing realms, if you may remember that from our last, from a talk from a few weeks ago about this sutra. Realms embracing realms. Or again, we can go back to everything is everything. Or everything is reflecting everything. In the book, The Enlightened Mind, Stephen Mitchell wrote, The net of Indra is a profound and subtle metaphor for the structure of reality. Imagine a vast net. At each crossing point, there is a jewel. Each jewel is perfectly clear and reflects all the other jewels in the net. The way two mirrors placed opposite each other will reflect an image ad infinitum. The jewel in this metaphor stands for an individual being or an individual consciousness or a cell or an atom. Every jewel is intimately connected with all the other jewels in the universe. And a change in one jewel means a change, however slight, in every other jewel. So, and this is the most important revelation of this. Or, when we look at that, it comes down to understanding or recognizing that whatever is going on with us is affecting others and the entire cosmos. And whatever is going on over there is affecting what's happening over here with us. Impossible to comprehend, but actually quite easy to prove if we observe if we are willing to be honest with ourselves. Indra's net is a, is a beautiful metaphor that is meant to point at reality as it is rather than the way we think it is. And the Avatamsaka Sutra is a highly elaborate description of what the Buddha realized at his awakening experience which simply boils down to the realization that all things, sentient and non-sentient, are fundamentally interwoven into a unifying, unfathomable fabric that has no beginning and no end. And we have to underline the unfathomable fabric. This means that 
one sitting, the, the one sitting on this cushion, this one sitting on this cushion, is endless, timeless, and far greater than what we think it is. And it's only the thought of being disconnected and fixed that's creating the sense of, or illusion, of a separate entity. The entity I call me. But if this is just an illusion, why does it feel so real? This is what the introduction is asking us. Mountains and rivers and one's own self. How could there be any distinction? That's just pointing at the fact. And then it is asking, why is it all divided into many? So maybe instead of asking why, why is it happening, we need to look at how we can change course and act differently so that we are more in alignment with who we are in essence. Maybe the why is not so important as much as the, what do we do? The fact of life is the fact of life. The fact that we divide is also a fact. Now what? Is the question. You know, some people say that since humans have been creating divisions and conflicts throughout our history, it is in our nature to do so. And it is part of our DNA makeup as human beings. It is true that this is a propensity we seem to perpetuate for quite a long time. But when we study the consequences of acting from divisiveness versus the consequences of acting from inclusiveness, we can learn a lot about our intrinsic self and how we have gone astray from it. And the proof is out in the open, right in front of our eyes. We're actually hardwired to love and deeply care for one another rather than to fight and hurt each other. And there's, there's plenty of verifiable evidence that shows the physiological and psychological harm caused by being socially isolated. Pandemic is a good example. By harboring grudge, by self-deprecation, by getting drawn into repetitive cycles of judgment and discrimination, by getting sucked into negative thinking patterns by speech infused with hatred and rejection and so on. In general, the way we are with each other as human beings leads to devastating consequences on a personal level, not just to others. So that we know. And then there is the flip side of that. 
And again, there's plenty of scientifically verifiable evidence that shows the positive psychological and physiological effects of thought, speech, and action that correspond with inclusiveness and love for one another. For example, the practice of loving-kindness. There has been extensive research that studied the ways compassion, kindness, and empathy towards others impact overall health and well-being immediately. And some examples for that. It relaxes the body. It reduces chronic pain. Decreases effect of PTSD. It changes the brain structure and it increases gray matter volume. It slows the aging process. It has positive effects on multiple processes of the body, such as the nervous system, digestive system, immune response, posture. And it helps strengthen an overall sense of contentment and ease. And this is the same with practice of gratitude and appreciation. You remember some of it from Gendai's talk. He touched on it a bit. Why is it that way? Why does it work this way, we have to ask. And what do we learn from that? That human beings are just born that way with propensities for harm and they're going to keep doing it? until they either extinct themselves or something else happens to this planet? Why does it happen? So when we study this, when we look at it closely, we can see. We can see the differences and we can learn to turn inwardly and allow that to come out, allow those energies to heal us. And it's not that we need to do so because it is beneficial for me. I'm not sure if it's going to actually work. Because if I'm doing it from a sense of self-concernness, then I'm not really doing it. I'm not practicing inclusiveness. So the practice of gratitude, appreciation, you know, even the thought, even when we are alone at home, just the thought that we are a part of a Sangha, that we're practicing together, we are practicing to care deeply for one another, we are practicing to examine our harmful propensities. And we are simply thankful for everybody in the Sangha that is helping keep it alive. Just that thought alone can go a very long way. A very long way. Just every morning, wake up and begin with gratitude and appreciation rather than with a frown. I have so much going on today. I have to meet these people. I have to get through this, through that. Why is it happening to me? 
Why has the world gone mad? Why is it not different? What does that do to us? And whatever it's doing to us, it's also doing to others. The problem is that we can't see it immediately. And we think that because we can't see it, it doesn't happen. Because we think that these eyes and this brain is, over, is all reaching, can see everything, can figure out everything. We think very highly of our created self. Even if we think very poorly of it, we think very highly of it by thinking very poorly of it. So, so self-deprecation is another way in which the ego functions. So it's a matter of intention. It's a matter of being deliberate. It's a matter of doing. It's a matter of deeply embracing. If you remember last week, the Denkai Fukushin, I mentioned a line from the Pledge of the Priest, which says, I will be a great tree deeply rooted in practice providing any and all with shade, shelter, and the breath of life. And this is not just for the postulant asking to ordain. The postulant asking to ordain is there to remind us what we need to do with the practice. It's not that this is the job description of an ordained practitioner, which means if I'm not, I don't have to bother with that. This is our responsibility, not just as practitioners, but as human beings. And it means to be a living example for others, to be of service to all. And then I mentioned also, <coughs> in relation to how do we know what others need, I mentioned a story about a farmer who spoke about the way he works with the land he was cultivating and he mentioned something that is connected to our practice or to life. And he said, rather than demanding and expecting the field to yield crops when the season comes, I look at the field every morning and I ask, what do you need today? What do you need today? So we can do so, we can do that every day, every moment, look around, whether we are with others or not, look around and ask, life itself, what do you need from me today? Now this is not not caring for oneself as it may seem or sound. Being of service to others is being of service to oneself. Being of service to others with, with the illusion of separateness is exhausting. 
And when we do it that way, patience will run out. And we will become very judgmental very quickly. Because I don't have patience. I, as the one I have invented and created, does not have patience for you. But the I that has not been invented does not know the end of patience. The I have, I have not invented is also the you I have not invented. No, our true nature is interconnectedness. But to bring that into fruition, we need to train ourselves so we don't go along with the propensity to divide and cause harm, so we don't believe the other kind of voices or voice within. And then also from last week, I mentioned that we need to cultivate four vital traits. And again, it's not just for the ordained practitioner, it's for all of us. The first one is a strong resolve. On a regular basis, strong resolve. Hone it, practice it. And never stop practicing it, as with the other traits as well. Which is the great determination as well. So strong resolve. The second one is a nimble attitude to life. And nimble means being accepting of things. Being willing to change. Also, Trusting that I have it within me to deal with that new circumstance that was not in the plan. Or to be willing to chuck the plan as soon as it doesn't, as soon as it's not needed anymore. It's not, it doesn't work, it's just not needed often. But it's my plan. I created the plan. I am identified with the plan and therefore I don't want to let it go. So to, to have a nimble attitude to life. It also means to recognize the change, that change is not a threat. It's a fact of life. How can life itself threaten, threaten itself? We are nothing but change. How can change be wrong? In reality, it's not. To the illusion, it is, of course. So within, from within the bubble... Change is a threat. Aging is a threat. The third one is unconditional care for others. As a practice, unconditional. Now with that, does it mean that conditions or judgments or parameters don't appear in the mind? So we can practice being unconditional while the mind is very conditional. While the thinking mind 
says a lot, has a lot to say. We can choose again and again to accept. We can choose to love. And then the fourth one, un, an unwavering, to develop unwavering devotion to the practice. Unwavering devotion to the practice. And, and that actually means unwavering devotion to life. And when we say, or we feel, I don't have time to practice, it's really like we're saying, I don't have time for life right now. I have too much going on. I have a long to-do list, which I have to get through. I'll get back to practice or to life later when I'm done with this. So we have to understand what, what it means, what we mean by to the practice. Because if we don't, devotion to the practice seems like a heavy lifting I may not have time for or energy for. And all of it is so we can work with our propensities, with the harmful propensities, and be aware of our state of being at all times. To stay aware and to be able to discern what is harmful and what is beneficial. All kinds of voices within, all kinds of tendencies that we have, and we have to be able to discern, stay on top of it, stay aware, and then learn to abandon what is harmful and unwholesome, or thinking patterns, tendencies, and then once we abandon, nurture beneficial and wholesome. And it's just a matter of training the mind on a momentary basis. It's not a matter of easy or difficult. It's a matter of training. And so to be a practitioner means to be training at all times. We train ourselves to be ourselves. Sounds strange. But that's what we're doing. Or maybe we are untraining ourselves from our habits so we can actually be who we are. And Buddhism teaches that within each of us there is an endless fountain of wisdom, an undifferentiated love, which by its own nature is always in a state of readiness to offer healing energies to everyone, oneself included. That's there. That is... It's, that is not in question in terms of Buddhist teachings. It's just that we get so distracted that we don't, we don't hear it, we don't see it. And so by choosing to love and care, we also remind ourselves who we are. By acting that way, we remind ourselves what we are and who we are in nature. There are two examples I want to bring up, and this is a 
two, I think, practical examples or advice, one from Shantideva and one from the Buddha, in terms of training ourselves. Shantideva said, when one intends to move uh, or when one intends to speak, one should first examine one's own mind and then act appropriately with composure. When one sees one's mind to be attached or repulsed, then one should neither act nor speak, but remain still like a piece of wood. And he says, when my mind is haughty, sarcastic, full of conceit and arrogance, ridiculing, evasive and deceitful, when it is inclined to boast, or when it is contemptuous of others, abusive or and irritable, then I should remain still like a piece of wood. When my mind is averse to the interests of others and seeks my own self-interest, or when it wishes to speak out of a desire for an audience, then I will remain still like a piece of wood. When it is impatient, indolent, timid, or biased in my, in my own favor, then I will remain still like a piece of wood. This is wonderful advice, isn't it? I will not give those propensities my mouth or my body. I will remain still like a piece of wood. If I cannot say something that is of beneficial to others, I will say nothing. I will remain still. And what happens when I say nothing? Am I not abandoning those propensities? I am not nurturing them. And then what happens? Then something calms down. And something else shows up naturally. When we don't engage in rejecting others for a while, or judging others, or judging ourselves for a while, then it's quite incredible to see what arises in us. How beautiful it is, how quenching it is. We just have to stop for a while, again and again and again and again on a daily basis. Complaining, for example. How easy it is for us to complain. Sometimes we can't wait until we find somebody who will listen to our complaints. Why? We have to ask, why? What is it serving? Is it really helping? Or is it just boasting? Look how miserable I am. I am more miserable than you. Therefore, I am set apart of you and others. Or our achievements the same thing. We can't wait to tell others, look at what I've done. 
Look at the certificates that cover my wall. And what if we don't? So, so when we want to express that and we don't, it does feel like something is shrinking. But then you wait and wait and then you will realize that something is expanding. But we have to go through the sense of shrinking before we can realize how expansive we are. And the second thing I want to bring up is what the Buddha told his son, Rahula. The Buddha said, Rahula, practice loving kindness to overcome anger. Loving kindness has the capacity to bring happiness to others without demanding anything in return. Practice compassion to overcome cruelty. Compassion has the capacity to remove the suffering of others without expecting anything in return. Practice sympathetic joy to overcome hatred. Sympathetic joy arises when one rejoices over the happiness of others and wishes others well-being and success. Practice non-attachment to overcome prejudice. Non-attachment is the way of looking at all things openly and equally. This is because that is. I am here because you are here. If I reject you, I reject me. If I reject me, I reject you. He didn't say that. Myself and others are not separate. Do not reject one thing only to chase after another. And then he said, I call these the four immeasurables. Practice them and you will become a refreshing source of vitality and happiness for all. Because you are a refreshing source of, and vitality for all. So it's not really becoming as much as recognizing and allowing that fountain to flow. Allowing it to flow. The verse. The staff swallows the universe. He vainly talks of peach blossoms floating on the rushing waves. For those with tails burnt off, it's not a matter of grasping clouds and seizing fog. Why should the exhausted ones necessarily lose their courage and spirit? I have picked it up. Do you hear or not? And this is talking about what it takes to actually realize. So there is a story about the cop swimming upstream, using all its power and going all the way up, becoming a dragon and then their tail gets burnt off by the fire of heavens. And then he said, I've picked it up. Do you hear it or not? One simply must completely 
be completely free and at ease, stop any further mixed up confusions. With 72 blows, I'm still letting you off easy. Even with 150, it's hard to forgive you. And then, Master Secho suddenly picked up his staff and came down from his seat. All at once, the great assembly scattered and fled, and Master Secho is the one who actually wrote the verses to this collection. And Tenke Denson commented on Secho's comment, saying, Applying Umon saying progressively, Secho has the unvarnished stuff itself. Just as it is, swallow the whole universe. So Yunman's reference to transformation into a dragon is roundabout, remote, and unnecessary. Because even if it is su successful and you become a dragon, it still couldn't grab the clouds and seize the fog. There is nothing unusual about it at all. And even a so-called failure doesn't lose courage or spirit. Nothing can be lost, is the point. Ultimately, there is no question of transformation or non-transformation. Every individual is entirely without gain or loss. This is such as seeing through Yunman's gap, then applying the saying creatively in producing the verse. But ultimately, even to say this is even to say this is nauseating, distracting, noisy. So put it all away. It's not even worth oh, I see. It's all settled. Not even that. Having put this coin to use, he puts it away here. But did you hear? Didn't you hear? Whether or not you heard. Just be free as and at ease, says Secho, unable to restrain himself from adding another footnote. In any event, people should directly abandon all subjective discrimination and calculating comparisons to become clean and clear, avoiding further confusion, making sure not to be spun around by things in confusion, as in reality there is nothing different at all. Moment by moment, as in reality, nothing different at all. Whether or not it feels this way, it doesn't matter. Because the feelings change. So one moment it does, one moment it doesn't. Still, it is this way. So do not judge by any standards. We chant again and again. That line is a lifelong practice. I think you know. I'd like to finish with a paragraph from the Avatamsaka Sutra. It says, It is like a great regal tree growing in the rocks and sand of a barren wilderness. When the roots get water and the branches, leaves, flowers and fruit will all flourish. The regal body tree growing in the wilderness of birth and death is the same. All living beings are its roots. All Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are 
its flowers and fruits. By benefiting all beings with the water of great compassion, one can realize the flowers and fruits of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas wisdom. Why is this? It is because by benefiting living beings with the water of great compassion, the Bodhisattvas can achieve supreme perfect enlightenment. Therefore, body belongs to living beings without living beings. I can read that again. Therefore, body belongs to living beings. Without living beings, no Bodhisattva could achieve supreme perfect enlightenment. Because of you, I am. Because I am, you are. It's the only enlightenment there is. So Yunmen said, Mountains, rivers, the great earth, where are they to be found? And the footnote says, In the ten directions there are no walls. On the four sides there are no gates. East, west, south, north. The four intermediate points above, below. How will you handle this one? So that's how the footnote ends. How will you handle this greatness of yours? Will you quantify it? Will you try to shove it into a box? Will you try to understand it? Will you try to compare it? Or can you just celebrate it? Handle this greatness with care and love. Deep, deep love. Thank you.